0: I just want to talk to you about uh, some social things that exist. Every society and culture has heated moments that it has to go through. And in these moments, in these moments where the heat kind of gets turned up, our decisions tell a story. So our decisions in heated moments tell a story. Our decisions in heated moments tell a story. So in the 50s and 60s, This was a heated cultural moment for those of you who know anything about American history or happened to live during that time. 50s and 60s is a heated cultural moment. Billy Graham, uh, the evangelist, the the preacher, he uh, holds these crusade events and Billy Graham's crusade events were segregated. Uh, and he enabled that to happen. He allowed for that to happen. And, and so uh, what we see as we watch his story is that he later expressed a deep regret over this reality. And so in 1953 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, he, he said, we're going to take the ropes down. So so he took the ropes that were sectioning off uh, the audience and had the the black section in one part. He took those ropes down and he said, we're not going to segregate anymore. And the ushers came to him and they basically like threatened, you need to put these up. And he said, well, if you want to put the ropes up, then I'm not going to be here preaching for this event and you'll have to do it without me. Right. So he took a moment to take a stand. He made a decision in a heated moment and his decision at that time told a particular story. So after traveling and, and seeing uh, brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, and, and he talked to them and they heard about the segregation that occurred in the United States, they were dumbfounded that that kind of thing would exist, that Christians would allow that kind of thing to exist. And Billy Graham himself, knowing that Christ did not make distinctions in his death, but kind of leveled the playing field at the cross, made every person kind of equal there, and invited all people to him, regardless of national origin or race or uh, language, right? Uh, He knows all of this, and so he could not, in his conscience, continue to allow his events to be segregated, and he made a really important decision at a heated time that told a story. Now, Billy Graham, like, he wasn't perfect by any means. You might disagree with me on that, but he wasn't, right? Billy Graham wasn't perfect, but he made a decision, and that told a better story of what the world could and should be. So today, we're starting a series in Exodus called Decisions, and in Exodus chapter 21, the Israelites were in a heated moment, so uh, so they were coming out of a place where they had been oppressed, and God kind of saved them out of that place, and he was sending them to a new land, and in the middle of that land would be a whole bunch of people who did things Let's say it the wrong way. Um, So so all of these countries, all of these nations around them were people who oppressed other people. People who took advantage of other people. But God wanted his nation to be a nation that would stand out and show his glory to those surrounding nations. And, And so this unique cultural moment, in the midst of it, their decisions would tell a story. They would tell a story about who their God was and what he accomplished for them. They would tell a story about where real power is in their nation. It's not through horses and chariots, but it lies in their God. And so, so the next four chapters of Exodus that we're going to look at, this is the, the kind of the Hebrew law. They are given to establish the nation of Israel but they reveal to us something overarching about God's heart, and they inform the kinds of decisions that God wanted his people to make in the midst of these heated moments. So here's the thing that I hope we see over the the course of the next four weeks as we look at these decisions. The values that God has for his people to carry out have not changed like God's values still remain the same because God himself does not change which means that those values have significant implications for the decisions that we would make in our spheres of influence and we just so happen I don't know if you've been watching the news again but uh we just so happen to be in the midst of a heated cultural moment right and we have the opportunity to make decisions that will tell a better story so uh so here's what you're kind of used to. You're used to me kind of putting a passage up on the screen or going through a passage and I kind of walk through it bit by bit by bit. We're, kind of, we're going to do things a little bit different over the course of the next four weeks. Um, in Exodus 21 through 24, uh, you have to know that Hebrew law is a little bit weird. So so if you read them through, and you were kind of just assessing, not recognizing that this was God's word, and you just kind of read 21 through 24, you might feel like Moses is a little bit like a kid with ADD, right? Because it's all over the place. There's, there's a little bit of information here, and then there, there's another bit of information here, and then when we get over here, it actually jumps back to the information that was over here, right? It's kind of, it, it's all over the place, and it can get kind of confusing, and that's because We have minds that are formed by Western society, right? We have Western ways of thinking. We have ways of thinking in America. And because of that, we don't really understand what's going on with Hebrew law. So let's talk about how our minds are formed. Modern Western law works like this. It lists exactly what I should and should not do. That's how modern Western law works. But ancient law, Hebrew law and ancient Near Eastern law, it... It provides examples of how to apply important principles, right? So uh, so we want it to tell us all the things exactly that we should and should not do, but that's not how it functions, right? Instead, what it does is it gives us a bunch of examples of principles that we are to apply. And it would appear to us that those examples are not in any particular order, right? Uh... And the reality is, is because our minds have been shaped the way they are, uh, some of that just doesn't make sense. So to help us better understand God's heart, these overarching principles, we're going to organize these examples that are kind of peppered throughout these uh, next four chapters into big values that are represented, uh, big decisions that we're called to make. And today's decision is this, protect the vulnerable. The decision that God calls his people to today and what we're going to look at is to protect the vulnerable. So who are the vulnerable? The vulnerable are the easily overlooked and powerless. The easily overlooked and powerless. So, So God's law here is upholding the dignity of those who would have been oppressed in other ancient Near Eastern societies. Right? So, so, just take a note. In the ancient Near East, there is kind of a caste system. There is kind of an order. So, like, if you uh, have wealth, then you're kind of at the, you're a male with wealth. You're at the top of that caste system. Right? And then there are, like, uh, categories of slaves and uh, categories of different people. It, it, what you need to know is God's purpose in giving this law is not to kind of undo that caste system. Like, he's not, he's not trying to level the playing field here. And that's really hard for us to hear because of the ways that we're formed. We really want God to level the playing field and kind of get rid of the inequities in society. And, and that's because we kind of grew up with the expectation. You know, we live in this country, and this country gives great opportunity. And we grow up with the expectation that every person should have equal opportunity but that wasn't true in the ancient Near East. And God doesn't kind of work to create a level playing field. So, so we need to kind of set our minds right as we approach the law because we're going to want it to do things that it is not its goal to do. So, um, so here's a principle that we need to know as we go into this. Biblical justice doesn't end vulnerability. Biblical justice doesn't end vulnerability. It promotes the dignity of the vulnerable. Right? So God's goal is not to eliminate differences in people and where they are in society. Right? And we can talk, like, history has progressed a long way and different things have happened. But God's goal is not to eliminate all of the vulnerabilities. It's to tell his people how you treat those who are vulnerable matters. So this, you need to know that this will feel wrong to you because you encounter society through a framework of rights and opportunities, right? And and we believe everybody should be afforded the same rights and opportunities, but you need to be careful not to let your view of rights and opportunities shade how you encounter these instructions. So So this was written for a time and a place where people did not have the frameworks that we currently have. And so let's take an example of this real quick, something that will feel wrong to you. Uh, Exodus 21, verses 7 and 8. It says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, right? Okay, so that should be shocking to us. Why can a man sell his daughter as a slave in the Hebrew law? When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So not only is is she allowed to be sold, but she is not afforded the same rights as male slaves in our framework, right? Because we read everything through the framework of rights and opportunities. Why doesn't she have the the same level of rights? It's not the goal of the law to give everybody equal rights. So verse 8, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. Okay, here's the crazy thing. She's still protected, right? When it says, he shall let her be redeemed. You know what the ancient Near Eastern societies could do with a woman who uh, they found to be kind of unhelpful as a servant? Well, they could neglect them. They could leave them out by the road. They could refuse to give them resources. They could essentially leave them to die. They could put them to death, right? Like all of these things are true about ancient Near Eastern societies, but what does God do? God makes sure that the woman can be redeemed, that she can be bought back by the family that sold her, right? So he's working to protect the dignity of the vulnerable. That's what we need to see. We don't need to see the differences in rights and opportunities. What God's goal is to say is you are going to be different than the people around you because you protect the vulnerable and they do not. So um, here's what God knew how his people treated the vulnerable would tell a story because they were in Egypt and they were vulnerable and they were mistreated and they were at the bottom of the system and God comes up and delivers them and performs mighty works for their sakes and so they are to treat the vulnerable like God treats the vulnerable. And as they do that, they are going to tell the story of what God did. Church, Christians, what we need to know this morning is how we treat the vulnerable tells a story. What we do with the vulnerable tells a story about us who found ourselves before our Father stuck in our sin and vulnerable. And Christ came and gave himself for us, became like us. It's actually, he sa- it says he humbled himself, right? He became vulnerable like us so that he might die for us to pull us out of our vulnerability, right? So, uh, so we have an opportunity to tell a story. So in the time that we have remaining, this is what I want to do. We're going to examine five different categories of vulnerability that is given in the law, and we're going to kind of discover how God's people then and now, through these different lenses, can tell a different story to a world that honestly, like, forgets and neglects and even oppresses vulnerable people. So, Exodus 21, verse 2. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave... In Exodus 21 verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, so automatically something inside of you tenses up when you see that because you say the law is justifying slavery, but you need to know that you're carrying into this assessment everything that you have uh, in your mind about American slavery and Hebrew slavery and American slavery were not the same thing. So, uh, so it's really hard for us to kind of separate this out, but to be a slave in Hebrew society is much different than the picture that we have. So just listen to the concepts that are given for Hebrew slaves. Uh, Exodus 21, 2 through 5. He shall serve six years, And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. This is called the year of Jubilee in Scripture. And no other society around the Israelites did this. If you were a slave, you were a slave forever. But in Hebrew society, you were a slave for six years. And then you were to be released, right? This is how you were to be treated. And if his master gives him a wife... Like, why would a master give a wife to his slave? And then, uh, verse 5, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, like, why would any of these things be the case? Well, it's because our concepts of slavery do not fit the kind of slavery that's being represented here. To be a slave in Hebrew society was much more like being a member of a household, right? Becoming a member of a family and much less like uh, the kind of oppression that we think of with american slavery because so so the slaves became a part of the family because before financing and before credit scores and before all the societal tools that we had uh, a person who found themselves kind of not having a livable circumstance who found themselves in debt the way that uh, they would pay off debt or even have access to a livable circumstance was to indenture themselves to uh, a kind of a, a person who had wealth, right? So, uh, so this was a way you could provide for yourself. It was a way you could provide for your family. It was a way to give you access to a livable circumstance. So slaves became members of households as a means of kind of working and having a place to live and having food to eat. So uh, here's what God knows. Because he's setting up all sorts of boundaries about how the Hebrew people are to treat their slaves. He knows that hurt people hurt people. Where did they just come from? They came from Egypt. And what did Egypt do to their slaves? They certainly didn't treat them like human beings, they treated them like animals, like beasts like worse than human. They are, in fact, it was common for Egyptians to call all of their slaves subhuman. They were worse than human. They were lower. We can kind of do whatever we want with them. And God says, not so with you. You will treat the people who serve in your households differently. So, so it's interesting. Exodus 21.20, he says, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Well, God is interested right there in protecting the slave. That is very unusual to the society surrounding them. Again, like you would not have heard of this in Egypt. You, you, if your slaves are, are killed, like they're just a piece of property, right? They're just a piece of money. Oh, you just lost that. That's all that it is. Right? But God says all human beings, even the slaves, have to have their lives protected. They are dignified. They have dignity. So let's make this really, really relatable. How many people in this room have ever been in a situation where you felt like you had no options left? How many, how many people know, like, know what it feels like to have no options left in a moment? I just want to see some hands. Yeah, okay. So you've had the experience— of 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 having no options left right and you live in the united states of america right so even when you have no options left there are resources abounding for your benefit right but that like in ancient near eastern societies like that was not the case right when you had no options left it was not like there are there are more options kind of waiting over there you were at the end of your rope and so this, this idea of slavery existing, it makes sure that people at the end of their rope are still treated with dignity, right? He want, God wants to ensure that his people uphold the dignity of even that life. And this is why context is really, really important, because you know what people in the 18th and 19th century did? People who owned property they looked at these passages in Scripture and used them to justify the atrocity that was slavery in early America. Right? They used them to justify it. The American form of slavery. And and you need to know, American slavery was much closer to Egyptian slavery than it was to the kind of Hebrew slavery that's being talked about here. In fact, early American slavery and modern-day human trafficking have much more in common with each other than either of them do with the Hebrew form of slavery. And it just so happens that this kind of action is expressly forbidden in the very same law that we're talking about. Exodus twenty-one sixteen. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him. So do you know what that means? It means the person who stole him, and every person that person was sold to afterwards. Every person who ever owned that stolen man shall be put to death, right? So, so God says you do not steal people, right? People indenture themselves. You don't get to take them and do whatever you want with them. So the entire slave trade that brought Africans to the U.S. was built on stealing people. And those people became powerless with no person upholding their dignity. So you know something else interesting today? The I-90 corridor is one of the most active corridors for human trafficking today across the United States. People stealing boys and girls and sending them across the country and on their way selling them to different people and take and profiting off of their existence. And in both of these instances, whether it's early American slavery or, or modern-day slavery, God is opposed to it, and there is no justice in it. Early American slavery was an atrocity. Modern day human trafficking is an atrocity. And as a result, uh, as a result of these things, people end up in situations where they have no options left because somebody has come in and, and they've stolen them. So God, he, he lays out all of this in front of them and he wants his people to protect the vulnerable. So let's condense this down into a principle. Church, we need to demonstrate God's heart for those who are out of options. Right? We tend to go, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, figure it out. There are a number of solutions. And and honestly, like, there are a lot of solutions in the United States. Like, let's be real about that. But when people are at that experience of running out of options, this is what he's doing in, he, uh, in Israel. He's making sure that his people are caring for those who are out of options and not just pushing them to the side, not just oppressing them. So, so if all you get out of what I just said is that you need to have compassion for people who made really bad decisions, or you need to have compassion for people who get stolen and have something forced on them, like if that's all you get, then that is a step in the right direction. Because what that does is it affords us the chance to tell a story. It tells the story of a person, you, namely, and me, who made some really bad decisions, and stood before a holy God and had no options left, We were without options, and Christ comes and says, I have a way for you. I have a way for you to be restored with your Father. I have a way for you to be rescued. He sets us free. He makes us right with our Father, and He comes to those who have no options, and so we image that reality. We tell that story when we pursue and love and uphold the dignity of those who are out of options. All right, so that was one category, slavery. Another category in the Hebrew law is widows and orphans. There's actually, there's, there's far less real estate given to this on this text, but that does not make it any less important. So Exodus 21, 22 through 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And then like the verses following that are all about Judgment that he is going to execute on those who refuse to treat the widow and the orphan well. So this law sets them apart, again, from other nations. Other nations don't care about the powerless. Like a woman without a husband, kids without a dad, you know what they are? They're people who have property who can be moved off of that property, and that property can be taken for for the people who have more power. because it becomes easy with someone who has more physical strength and more resources to come in and take stuff and take advantage of the situation. And so, God's people are said, like, you are to protect them when they have no one left to protect them. You are to be their resource when they have no resources left. And, And when God's people don't do this, God gets really passionate about it. So, this vulnerability, like, it doesn't change for the, the church. This, this carries through all of time and all of history. Widows and orphans still remain, and the church is called to care for those who don't have anybody left to care for them. In our case, we would say this is the elderly, this is the widows, this is the orphans. They have no family left, and God wants to make sure that they're cared for. In general, yes, for all of them, but especially in the church, like, let it not be said of the church that there are widows and orphans and people among us who are not cared for when they have no one left. James one twenty-seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. What he's saying is, you may know Jesus, right? You may understand what Jesus did for you. The true outworking of what Jesus accomplished is that you care for those who have no one left to care for them. So demonstrate God's heart for those who have no one left. That's the call on us. Because at the cross, Jesus stood and took in our place for those who were powerless, came and gave us something that we could not get ourselves. And we tell a story every time we care for those who are powerless. Uh, let's talk about the unborn. Unborn. So, you need to know, there is a current cultural movement, and it is afoot, and it is telling the following lie. A truly free and just society will let me choose to be whatever I want. A truly free and just society will let me choose to be whatever I want. That lie has gotten told and retold and retold to the point that we will deny what is obvious to uplift our rights, our freedom to choose to be whatever I want. So you don't want to know what's obvious. Human life begins in the womb. Like that is obvious. You, this is why we name our babies before they arrive. This is why we have gender reveal parties. I, this is why it is heartbreaking every time a woman has a miscarriage. Because human life does not just like somehow start after a child comes out of the womb. Human life begins in the womb. The womb is the place where that life is particularly vulnerable. So, uh, so the incredible thing is God recognizes what is obvious. Exodus 21, 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. So it's saying, okay, uh, something has happened to the pregnant woman. They've striven. and It's even an accident, right? Like they're striving against each other, but then they hit the woman and the children come out. There's no harm, though. The one who hit her needs to be fined, right? So he still has to pay something. But then in verse 22... Oh, sorry, 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here, God is acknowledging the unborn life has value. And even the, the particularly vulnerable in the womb, that is a life that is still to be Protected. So, church, this is what we need to do. We need to demonstrate God's heart for the unborn. We need to demonstrate God's heart for the unborn. As God's people, we need to know and be confident in the fact that God is unashamedly anti abortion. Like, we need to just be stuck on that reality. Like, this is why there are Christians who adopt. This is why Christians create structures to serve young moms in the midst of their fear about what it is like to be a parent. This is why Christians uh, exist to advocate for the protection of life in the womb. This is why Christians help families come up with solutions to bring these pregnancies to term. The reason this happens is because the world is saying, don't let that baby live if you can't give it a good life and you can't give yourself a good life. If you can't do that, don't let that baby live. But the author of life says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So, in our care for the unborn and and those who are bringing the unborn to term, we tell a story of a God who values life even at its most vulnerable stages. Okay, so there's one more category we have to consider this morning. The sojourner and the refugee. Exodus 22:21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So remember what I said at the beginning, the decisions we make at heated moments tell a story. Right? God is saying, here's the story. Here's the story that you're telling. Every time the Israelites showed hospitality to the stranger, every time they welcomed the person who didn't look like them, every time they upheld the dignity of a person from another nation, they countered the story that the Egyptians told them when they were in Egypt. Which is because you're intruding on our land, you're worthless, and you're dogs, and we get to do whatever we want to you. But he tells his people, no, you're to tell a different story, because you are the people who have been rescued out of Egypt. The, The ancient Near Eastern attitude is that you come on our soil, then you become our property, we do what we want with you, and that is what happened to the Hebrew people. And so God calls his people to demonstrate his heart for the person who doesn't belong. Church, we need to demonstrate God's heart for the person who doesn't belong. God tells his people, you're going to tell the story in the way that you treat the refugee. Because you were far from home. Remember, I have this land that I'm sending you to. This is the place that you belong. You were far from that place. And you know what I did for you? I served you and saved you even though the Egyptians were mistreating you. So, we do the same thing. You know why? Because when we came to Jesus, do you know what we became? Do you know what metaphor the word uses for us who came to Jesus? In First Peter, it calls us refugees. Right? Like, we're, we're encouraged not to get too comfortable, not to make this place our home, right? Because our home is in a different place. Our home is in God's kingdom. We're kind of just making our way through. We became those whose home is not of this world. We became those who are quite frankly, if we're living the right way, told that we don't belong here. And that should impact the ways that we treat the people who also get told they don't belong here. So let us never overlook another person or treat them differently simply because we think they don't belong or because somebody else says they don't belong. We display God's heart to those who don't belong. So we get to serve them. We get to welcome them. And so in this process, we actually get to tell a story of a Savior who served us and gave us a different home. Okay, so what? So we went through those examples. We talked about some realities of what exists. We talked about really God's heart for the vulnerable, right? So number one, without Christian ethics, modern social justice wouldn't exist. So our modern concepts of what is just in society and being fair and caring for the vulnerable, those things wouldn't exist. Hospitals, schools, universities, orphanages. Like we could evaluate all of that and say those things are a net societal good. Like those contribute to the good of society all of them came into prominence and existence in society because Christians were at the forefront of making sure that they were built. Right? So it is not in the natural impulse of societies to educate the common person, to expend resources for the sick and dying, to care for the vulnerable, and yet we care for those things in the United States because Christianity is responsible for building those values into our nation. So, so we have a term for this today, and it comes by many different names, but what it gets commonly called is social justice. But the problem is the current loudest proponents of social justice, what they really want to do is they want to decrease the vulnerability of some people at the expense of other people. Actually, not decreasing the vulnerability of some people at the expense of other people, at the devaluing of the dignity of other people. So um, this is where we need to be really clear that biblical justice upholds the dignity of all people. Like nobody gets wasted in the process of pursuing biblical justice because every human being is made in God's image. Okay, so what number two? I want to encourage you this morning to make a decision. And it can be overwhelming. You know, we went through, what, six different examples of how we protect the vulnerable, right? I want you to pick one. I want you to make a decision to actively protect the vulnerable, and I want you to bring someone with you when you do it. And this is why. Because we've talked about how one, one of the things that uh, we're going to change in the way that we teach and preach and all that is that we're going to talk about not just information that's for you, but how do you develop other people? So, look at the example of Jesus. Like, what does he do? Before the disciples ever actually really start to understand what, who he was and what he actually came to accomplish, before any of that happens, Jesus takes the disciples with him as he goes and serves the vulnerable, as he is healing people who are sick, as he is setting at liberty those who are oppressed by demons, uh, as he is feeding those who are hungry, right? He's taking his disciples with him and showing them what it looks like to care for those who are most vulnerable. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about um, our young adults. Uh, You've heard us mention, you know, one of our big emphases as we look to the future of what this church is going to do is we want to raise up the young adults to actually connect with other young adults in our community, right? One of our plans is to um, two times a month serve vulnerable people together and invite other people to do that with us. Right, Like one of our hopes is that we can become aware of the vulnerabilities that surround our area. And that as we work to serve vulnerable, vulnerable people and invite others along with us, that we will be able to tell a story of a God who met us in the midst of all our vulnerability and he saved us. So, so maybe you, what you can do is you can find a vulnerability. Gosh, that is a hard word to say. Vulnerability here in our community. And, and when you see that vulnerability, I want to encourage you, like your impulse, especially if you're built like me, your impulse is just going to be to do it yourself, right? To meet it yourself. Take someone with you, right? Because as you take someone with you to meet that vulnerability, you get to tell a story. So um, let's look at this reality god lays this out in his law for his people tells them what they are to decide to do in the midst of the heated moments that are in front of them god put this in israel's law and you know what israel did they neglected the vulnerable they refused to care for those who were weak and powerless among them right they ultimately like failed in this effort And then God sent Jesus. The God made flesh. And and this guy who has all the power in the world, right? Who, Who was there in creation. Became like us. Became like vulnerable people. That he might die. To give these vulnerable, broken, sinful people. The opportunity to be made right with their father. And to have life. So church, may we be those who constantly demonstrate God's heart for the vulnerable. Would you pray with me, please? God, it can be really easy to get comfortable in the life that we've built in this place. It can be really easy to think of this place like it is our home. But let us remember when you saved us, you said this world is no longer your home. You have a home in a different place. You're now the person who doesn't belong. And so may we, Lord, carry hearts towards those who don't belong. May we we carry uh, your heart to the widow and the orphan. May we carry your heart to the unborn. May we carry your heart to those who have been oppressed, Lord. Lord, may we see these vulnerabilities and actually be able to tell the story of Jesus who met us in the midst of our most vulnerable place and offered us hope. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about restoring hope as a church. We're working together to restore hope to all people. Lord, uh, as we work to restore hope, may we meet people in the midst of their vulnerabilities. May may we be a friend to them. May we uh, provide something tangible for them. May we provide prayer for them. And may we tell them the story of you who comes and gives hope to the most vulnerable. Lord, may we decide that we will be about this work as the heat intensifies, and even when the heat is low. Lord, at all times, may we be those who care for the vulnerable. Holy Spirit, only you can do this. So would you move us? Would you lead us to cooperate with you in the ways that you want to minister to those who are powerless? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.